Welcome to Interplay. This is your host, Michael Shapiro, and today I'm with Simona Dennerstein. Hello, Simona. Hi, Michael. So wonderful to see you. And we'll get to your new recording shortly, and because there's a great story about it, and I want to talk to you about it specifically. But there are so many people that are interested in your life story because, you know, what's incredible is that you came to the forefront in 2007 publicly, let us say, after a lot of years of working with your recording of the Goldberg Variations. Describe how that all happened, because I find it fascinating. Uh, it was, um, it's hard to, to describe it very quickly, actually, but basically I, um, I had uh, been working on, um, I, I had been working as a freelance pianist in New York since I graduated Juilliard in, in I guess, 96, and uh, had really, you know, I had a very typical life teaching children, no, neighborhood teaching, doing some collaborative playing. Um, I was trying for competitions, but I wasn't really cut out for competitions. And, uh, and then um, in uh, 2001, I guess, I um, had two exciting things happen. First of all, I won my first competition. It was also my last competition. <laughs> um, the Astral, Astral Auditions, which was is in Philadelphia. And that gave me a debut recital. And so I was very excited about that. And then shortly after that, my husband and I found out that we were expecting um, our son. And uh, everything was kind of happening all at once. And so uh, for mysterious reasons, I guess I felt that I was now ready to play my favorite piece of music, which was the Goldberg Variations. And I decided to learn them while I was pregnant and to play them for my debut recital for Astral. And I wound up doing that and, it, and then I performed them for several years in, in lots of different like local and like community centers. I traveled a lot for the Piatigorsky Foundation around the country and played them there. And then I decided to uh, record them because I wanted to document where they were at that point. And um, I raised the money to record them from three people who had been very supportive of me over the years and found an amazing producer, Adam Ape's house, who's been my record producer ever since then. Mine and, also. Uh, Me too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I recorded them and and then the ball just got rolling and I recorded them in 2005. And in 2007, Telarc commercially released that recording and it it did extremely well and my life changed. I've heard from some people that your recording is the equivalent in their minds of the two Glenn Gould recordings, um, or even but it's so different because Bach is like the Bible, can be read and interpreted in multi multiple ways. Yeah. Well, you brought up on the Gould recordings uh, any influence on you? Absolutely. I mean, Gould was my idol, and actually, for I discovered the Goldberg creations through his recordings. Uh, actually, it was the 81 recording that I remember hearing first um, when I was about 13. 
and I just completely, it was, it was really in a, a moment of epiphany. I mean, it was just, I just remember even where I was and the light in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I went out and bought the, the music as soon as I heard it, which I knew I wasn't ready to play. I, I was, it, it was too hard for me to, to, to learn it at that point, but I just wanted to own the music, which I, is something I never really did with any music. Um, and for many, many years, I think I, I didn't even consider playing the piece because of Gould, because I just loved his recording so much. Um, and then I also was really um, excited by one of Rosalind Turek's recordings too, yes. which was yes. that, he, that she made in, um, uh, she made that recording in the home of, um, uh, Willi uh, of William Buckley. Oh, wow. Of all people. So that was, um, that's an interesting recording. But the, the recording that kind of let me realize that, in fact, there were so many different directions that this piece could take was the recording of Jacques Lussier mm. that he did with his jazz trio. And when I heard that recording, it was so different than any other recording I'd ever heard. I mean, I'd heard it performed live. I'd, I'd gone to see, I studied with Peter Serkin, and I've, I'd heard him perform it. And yeah. I heard Baron Boim perform it, and I heard wonderful performances of it. But when I heard Lucier, it was so radically different than anything I'd heard before, and it made me realize that actually, I should, I should, look at the music myself and um, see what was there that, that spoke to me. So, is it the freedom of the lines? What got you to that point? I think that um, you see. I think that it's absolutely impossible to emulate Gould. You know, I think that he is a horse of a different color and, um, and the passion that, that Gould fans feel for him has to do with precisely that, that it's, it's just from a different planet. Um, and his sense of rhythm I often think is very misunderstood because people think that his playing is kind of mechanical or, or rigid. There's absolutely oh, no. nothing rigid about it. It's, you no. can't put a metronome to it. I mean, That's it's, it's all over right. the, you know, That's right. yeah. um, but he had a very particular type of drive to the way that he thought about phrasing and, 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 and counterpoint. And um, I didn't feel it that way, but I didn't recognize that, maybe that was okay. Like I felt like it wasn't all right for me to feel something differently while right. being an adoring fan of gold. Um, and so when I heard Lucier and I realized that articulation and freedom could go in a different direction, then I thought, well, I should, I should try that. And so it's really about breathing for me in a very yeah. different kind of a way. And, and I really developed um, a sort of range of, of articulations that felt more like singing to me. Um, can, we talk about, can we talk about that? Because you've spoken to me on other occasions when you talk about that you learn pieces slowly, that they have to get into you. But more, in fact, is that you sing the lines. Talk to us about that. 
Yes, well, uh, one of my really important teachers was Maria Curcio, and she, she, she had been a pupil of Schnabel. And she had me, when I was studying Bach with her, she would have me play, sit, play two lines and sing the third, you know, if it was a three voice uh, right, fugue right. or something like that. Yeah. And um, after studying with her, I started to really try singing a lot of things. I mean, mm -hmm. in general, I, I tend to think about singing anything I'm playing. And um, I try, actually do sing, I have a terrible voice, but I just Doesn't sing matter. it. And, and that shows me where to breathe. And it shows me um, what feels natural. Because playing the piano, the piano is an instrument that requires absolutely no breathing. And um, it's, it's a machine, you know, and so... Unless you're Thelonious Monk. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> but you have to kind of, you have to get away from the fact that it's hammers hitting strings and think about all of the other things that it could sound like. Um, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, phrasing, because this is something that I deal with when I com conduct and when I write music. I think of lines as sung. It may be because I'm a vocal composer, but I've written, you know, orchestral music, symphonic music, piano music, everything for solo instruments, whatever. But I always feel the human voice is so important and that all the great composers, every single one of them, were thinking vocally, even when they wrote like the Mozart Concerti, which comes seemed to come right out of the operas, you know? Yes. And you played Mozart Concerti. I know yeah. that. And amazingly so. <laughs> What, I, what I've heard about your, your playing, too, is I, I, I've heard, of course, the Bach, but I've heard Schumann live. I think it was the Chrysleriana, I think. Yes. And the inner lines that were going, I had never heard anything like it. Number one, every line is sung. You don't stop singing throughout. You have the microform. You have the macroform. It's all going at the same time. And it, it feels that you've been working very hard. But when you come to the performance, there's a breath and you go. Talk about yeah. the difference in practicing and then public performance in, let's say, a small space like we, we were together in Nyack. I find that amazing. Yeah, well, uh, I think that um, when, when I'm practicing, a lot, of, a lot of work is being done. So there's a very little playing. It's more about um, trying to understand what's in, in the score. And right. uh, I do a lot of separate voice practicing because every voice has a different direction or a different character. And I process things pretty slowly. So it takes me a while to be able to know what each voice is doing. And then when I really know that, then I can start putting them together and to maintain their integrity while I put them together. So all of that kind of very critical work happens in my room when I'm practicing. And then, but my feeling about a performance is that it's um, ephemeral and that mm -hmm. it's, it's about, um, you've already done the work and ideally you should let go of your critical ear 
and um, just be playing. Now, I don't like getting lost in the music because I don't, I don't think that that's good either. Sometimes that can be almost a little bit sort of like navel gazing. So yeah. I think that it's what I, my favorite performances are when I have this feeling like I'm some kind of eagle in the sky looking down mm-hmm. and seeing the layout of the land. The, the piece of music is like a map that I'm looking at and yep. uh, a road and, and I'm traveling in the road, but I'm also looking at it from above the road. Yep. And, uh, and that to me is a perfect kind of balance. I've had the same experience when the end of my baton with 80 players, it feels like Harry Potter. I'm, <laughs> I'm not joking. And you have yeah. that, ten- that tension coming back at you and you're giving it back and suddenly, boom, and you feel it right through your body. It's the most yeah. incredible experience. It is. You studied before Bach. Let's go back in time a little bit. And then I want to get to a, a character of quiet. You studied before you started Bach when you were very young on recorder, did you not? Yes, that was my first instrument. Um, uh, it was because uh, um, we were living in Rome, in Italy, because my dad is, a, is an artist. Behind painter. you is Simon Dinerstein, yes? Yes, this, this is a stolen painting here. <laughs> um, and uh, um, we were, he was at the American Academy in Rome, and so we were living in Rome. And uh, I was taking ballet classes, and there was a pianist who played during class and Mm -hmm. she played Chopin and I was about five and I just fell in love with the music. I mean, I love dancing, but I loved the music and I really wanted to take piano lessons. You're playing dances, by the way. (laughs) Thanks. And my, my parents were like, they didn't, they didn't know a lot about music, classical music, and they didn't know that kids actually started that young. And also we didn't have a piano. So um, my dad asked one of the composers that was at the academy, what should he do? And, right. and the composer said, she should start with the recorder. And so my father found a professional recorder player. She was a, a Renaissance music specialist. She played all the wind instruments. Right. And, um, and so I started taking recorder lessons with her and so my training started with Renaissance music, um, which was just great. And it just so happened also that the two people that my parents were friends with who, who are musicians, um, at that time, that they, they've been, I'm not wording this correctly, they met them before I was born, and they <laughs> still are musicians, but um, Ben Harms and Lucy Bardo, who are both uh, founding members of Calliope, which is great this group. amazing, amazing great group. group. Yeah. Um, so I grew up going to their concerts with my parents and knowing them. And uh, so Renaissance music was very important from, from a young age. And you say, I know you've told me, it, it is a compelling thing for you now. I will tell you for me as a composer, I studied 16th century counterpoint, the Boulanger style, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I studied with Madame Logie ear training. So I've had French mm-hmm. conservatoire training. Mm. which gets me out of all kinds of issues if I'm moving along. I just go back into myself and follow the lines and they take me. So to this day, I know that I heard you play Ramaud, have I not? You heard me play Couperin. Couperin. Yes. Yes. Uh Yeah, but you could play Amazing Ramaud too. 
the, <laughs> you know, the French Bach, you know? Yes. The Couperin you played was just breathtaking. And I think, you. that your, I think that your Renaissance background really, really compels you to play a certain way where it's just so flowing and dance-like. You know, yeah. there's been a review by The New Yorker, Lean Knowing and Unpretentious Elegance, which, of course, is press stuff and it's on your website. But it sums you up in a certain way. <laughs> it does. Um, I want to talk about the most wonderful recording because that's one of the reasons we got together. And you sent me this. A character of quiet. Sonata in B-flat. The great sonata. And then you have the three etudes of Phil's. Phil glasses, which are just totally remarkable pieces. I know you've recorded uh, his third uh, piano concerto. So yes. talk about, and I've heard you play glass live too. Tell me about, I'm not questioning it because I love it, how you connect Schubert, Phil Glass, and Simona Dynastine. <laughs> um, I, I first heard this connection when I was listening in the car a few years ago to some music and I, I was listening to um, Glass's Metamorphosis for piano. Yeah, I think it was right. the Metamorphosis 2. And uh, and suddenly I thought, oh, this sounds so much like Schubert. It's so interesting. Um, and I, I wondered how much of his music sounds like Schubert. So I set out to listen to all of his piano music. Right. And sure enough, Quite a lot of it does sound like Schubert. Um, I think what what draws me, what 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 I hear in terms of the connection, has to do on with several elements. Uh, one is that Schubert, his writing is is so subtle, and um, and oftentimes he'll just stay in a harmony for a very long time. That's right. But he'll just change something about the voicing of it which transforms everything like either the voicing or the articulation but the harmony remains constant and then when he does change harmony he tends to do it through these very subtle shifts where one note in a chord will change or there's an enharmonic shift right and um all of these things are techniques that glass uses as well in his writing he does um and then also this sense of, of something repeating. I mean, Schubert's writing is full of repetition. Yeah. Um, and there's, there are these huge structures that he's not afraid to repeat. Like, you know, like think of the Trout Quintet. There's this like epic repeat that nobody really usually takes because it's so I long. I didn't when I played it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but but there's there's a reason for those repeats like he he wanted it structurally and uh and glass the same thing the repeats are like a part of us of a of an architecture and what happens on the repeat is very interesting because things change you yep. know they're always changing uh so it's mu it's music that on the one hand is about repetition but but actually is about change everything you know, is about change no question and there's one thing that some people don't get about philip glass's music which is true of schubert's music it's totally sincere mm -hmm. yes and that's important there's no funny business it's really yeah. sincere and it's yeah. that's the i mean i i met him 
he's a very nice, sincere person. And it yeah. comes out in the music. I've yeah. always found that to be a terrific thing. Both he and Schubert also write, wrote or write incredible no amounts of, of music. Yeah. Now, the difference with Schubert is that Schubert did not have Nadia Boulanger as a teacher. And <laughs> at the, at the, well, it's important because at the end of Schubert's life, he wanted to study with Albrechtsberger, you know, who, uh, who, had, who was Beethoven's teacher, I think. Uh -huh. And he, was, he didn't survive to do that because he was yeah. worried about his contrapuntal knowledge, which oh. you find amazing, um, a very homophonic kind of composer in certain ways. Talk about color, though, because there's color in Schubert, and there's color in Philip Glass's music. And I'm curious how you're affected when you play with the use of color with harmony. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think that that's a vital part of the music. So, um, <clears throat> I, I guess, how do you show um, a transformation that takes place when there are three chords or four chords? Uh, and, and, and one of the, the best ways of doing that is through color. So it's about um, really feeling, um, you have to really feel what's happening in the moment as you're playing it and let your fingers and your ear respond. Your ear has to guide your fingers. Uh, and I think that studying Glass's music has really, really um, heightened my awareness of this in a way that no other composer has. That's fascinating. Yeah. I want to get back to the human story of, yes. this, of this wonderful new release, A Character of Quiet, Schubert Glass. Like me and many others, you went into a kind of a ugh, period when this all started, when this recent pandemic started. But with the help of someone like Adam and your own fortitude, you came back to us and produced this amazing new release, which has just come out this September, this past September. And it is so well worth anyone either purchasing or going on to Spotify or downloading from Apple Music. It's on all the platforms. And it's, it's, it's your character of quiet. So talk to us about the title, if you would. Yeah, well, the title comes from a, a, a beautiful and very uh, inspiring poem called The Prelude by William Wordsworth. It's a, it's a huge poem. It's an autobiographical poem, and and um, and he's in this part of the poem. He's talking about um, the need to get away from society, to to be distanced from urban life, and uh, and when I was, I happened to be reading this. I it was this you know, as this period has been for many people, um, it's been a time when I've done things that I don't normally do. And um, I'm not normally one to read poetry, uh, but I did read poetry during uh, May and June. And I happened to come across this poem. And um, when I read that line, a character of quiet, which is just part of a line. It's actually saying something bigger. But that those words 
just they just jumped out at me and they thought I felt like that's what that's what I've been experiencing here because I've been living in Brooklyn and it was eerie how how the streets you know there were no cars and we heard all these birds that we never heard before and I was um, spending a lot of time walking around Greenwood Cemetery, which is right near me, which is this beautiful, beautiful cemetery. And it's, it's like Père Lachaise in Paris. It's extraordinary. It's, yeah, it's amazing. And, um, and I was, you know, alone with my thoughts a lot. I mean, I was with my family, but I was, there's a strong interior life going on. And, um, and the quiet was not always a comforting quiet, really. I mean, the quiet of um, that period was frightening and, um, and upsetting and lonely, as well as being reflective. And, and also now that it's getting noisier, part of me misses that quiet. You know, it'll, like I, it, it'll be on this interview, by the way, the outside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's how I came up with the title uh, and, and the music that I chose to record being the Schubert and Glass is definitely on the quieter side. I mean, it's very introspective music. And so I thought that that was a perfect title. Well, I just love the recording. I'm listening to it over and over again. Thank you. I've never heard the B flat Schubert played the way you play it, ever. I played it myself. I know the piece. It is yeah. an incredible piece for a man in his late 20s to write no matter what. Yeah. I mean, where it came to him, we just don't know. Yeah. But it, it's extraordinary, and the shape of it and the size of it. And then Phil's music is just dazzling. I mean, the combination is so refreshing. You know, you've been taught, it's been said that you are... Uh, have this remarkable voice in the forest of uh, of of Bach interpretation, but I, I think that's just too small a comment. Because yeah, I do. In all the things I've heard, and you have maybe eleven, twelve, what we call albums in the old days. Out, you're playing with orchestra, you're playing Havana, you're playing all kinds of music, uh, and. Um, you know, if I hear you're playing, I'm not lost in the forest. I know it's you. <laughs> That's I do. nice. Thank you. It's really true. So this thank is you. Michael Shapiro on Interplay, Conversations in Music with Simona Dinnerstein. Simona, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Michael. It was wonderful to talk with you. Thank you.